0: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to PWG's well Chat podcast. This is an educational series, so please take what sounds useful to you. But before you make any changes, please check with your own healthcare team. All right, Dr. Eileen, what do we got on tap
1: to talk about today? Well, today, episode ten is aptly named the Elephant in the Room. That's an interesting name. Why is it called the Elephant in the Room? Because it is some it's addressing a topic anxiety, if you will. And often people feel uncomfortable talking about it. So it becomes the elephant in the room. Although I would say in pediatrics, we sometimes have several elephants in the room. But this, this is something that we're seeing more and more of. Yes. Yes. And yes.
0: And it's funny, I like the analogy of elephant in the room, because oftentimes I'll walk in the room, and it's really obvious. You could I know the phrase, cut the tension with a knife, because I have felt it and I've seen it. And everyone has a medical question, but there's clearly this other thing in the middle of the room that everyone's carefully avoiding mentioning or talking about. And sometimes there's this palpable sense of relief when you just sit down and say, it really sounds like you're nervous or you seem anxious
1: or tell me what else is going on. And then it just comes out. Have have you had that happen? Yes. And often it's at the end of a visit, a well yes. check because it's been so hard to bring up that there, t- it takes some time and some discussion before our patient or parent brings it up. So it becomes a, Oh, there's one more thing. Yeah. I have to talk about.
0: And let me be clear. Anxiety is, at every I firmly believe that almost everything that we see has at least one element of anxiety, either as a result of or contributing to what we're seeing. Certainly for the older kids, middle school and up, there's there's a lot of anxiety. You mean there.
1: behaviors or, yep. isu- or or issues with yep. things that aren't going well in life? Yep. Because I think the other thing to talk about is anxiety can be normal. It is normal. So... It, it, it exists to a great extent to make us feel successful, so we move on and do the next thing. So it would be normal for uh, for us to have be worried or anxious about a performance, right? Or, or the first time we do a test. podcast. Yep. yep. Or talking to somebody about something we don't feel comfortable with. Yep. Or studying for a test. Yep. These would all be things that you would normally feel anxious about. And when you get through them, generally, you feel a sense of achievement. And it makes the next time you have a task that makes you anxious, less anxious. Yep. Yep, Um, That's exactly it. So I think that kind of anxiety we recognize as useful and normal. And um, that's not something I'm worried about. The anxiety I'm worried about is the kind of anxiety that leads somebody to be stuck in their room where they can't do something that they're supposed to do and we're going to get we're going to get into it in more detail but it's important to recognize that there's normal anxiety and then there's abnormal anxiety that's
0: that's a good distinction I, i have to say honestly this entire podcast was largely born out of conversations that you and i had about how sad it made us to see so much suffering um with the kids that we hadn't taken care of since they were babies. And now they're going through rough patches or the parents who have these beautiful toddlers and are so wrapped up in their anxiety about raising that child that they can't see or enjoy the moments that are going beautifully because of this anxiety. And and I feel like over the years it's been a common theme for us. And I think at one point we, we each just said, you know, we should just, we should just talk about this. I think societally, there's still this sense of discomfort around talking about anxiety.
1: Certainly in our parents' generation, there was a big stigma about mental illness. It it. didn't, it didn't exist. You didn't talk about it. It was, um, would bring shame to the whole family. Yep. So I think that that has changed. There is still some, there is still stigma. So I won't say that that doesn't exist, but the teenagers that i see that particular segment of the population seems more comfortable in general talking about their feelings and their emotions um than i would say the teenagers i took care of at the beginning t- two de- two decades ago i think there's some That's shift fair. I'll, I'll give
0: you that although i don't know where everyone lives but in our neck of the word world silicon valley Up until a few years ago, I got the sense that anxiety was for losers or acknowledging that you were having any sort of sadness or any emotion other than I am in complete control and I'm absolutely wonderfully ecstatically happy. Anything other than that was a sign of weakness. And Don't you
1: think technology promotes that as well?
0: You know, we could spend hours talking about the reason, but my sense was that it's interesting, just like in our generation, we had the public persona and the private persona. There's still a lot of that. It's just the, you know, you got to be a winner. You got to have a winner's attitude. You you can't ever be sad. And that's just not
1: realistic. No. Um, <clears throat> that's not realistic at all. Right. I mean, the prevalence of anxiety now, if you look at some studies, is anywhere from 10 to 30 percent. I've even seen some studies as high as 40 percent. I, I would not be surprised if it's even higher than that, Um so so that, I mean, anxiety is the most common childhood onset psychiatric disorder now. So and it's not, It that's, I think, what we're seeing in our practice too. So oh, looking at absolutely. the studies and then just getting a ballpark estimate of what we see every day in our patient population, it matches to me.
0: Oh, very much so. Uh, but to your point, there's the normal anxiety, which means 100% of us should have it. And then there's the abnormal meaning, the way I describe it is, you can feel nervous. You should feel nervous about doing things that are "quote unquote" scary, whatever that is, or challenging, or challenging. Mm-hmm. That, that's normal. A healthy amount of anxiety propels you to study for the test, like you said. But an unhealthy amount of anxiety means you are just hopping on that hamster wheel, and all you can think about is how scared you are, or nervous, or all the bad things, and then you can't do the thing that you want to do. Is kind you of you can't how move think forward exactly. So, tell me more
1: about what you see because. I see so much of it. Me too, and I sort of sometimes even get the sense of it when I see little kids, like maybe we're going to go down this road. Um, But there are different types of anxiety, uh, and we can talk about how they might manifest in our patient population. The one big um, area of anxiety is known as generalized anxiety disorder. So in this situation, our patient may have lots of things they're worried about. They, um, they're they worried that these these fears, are they're difficult to stop. They're things that they feel they're out of control with. They might be preoccupied with how they're doing in school, how their academic performance is. They might be worried about safety or health concerns. It might be for them, or it might be that they're worried about somebody's going to be sick even though they're not sick but they can't, so, but it's it's they can't they can't move past that it ruins their day cuz they can't stop worrying so that the 5 or 6 year old sick. that just has a
0: hissy fit or melts down and won't go to school if their favorite sweatshirt isn't washed and they can't wear that all the time or the middle school kiddo who um loses it when they find out that their favorite teacher is uh Taking leaving. leave of absence. Right. And now they're not going to school. Or I see panic full blown panic attacks happen a lot where we'll see adolescents
1: that come in, I can't breathe, or my, my chest hurt. Those are the two My heart rate is going exactly. up and I'm sweating yeah. and I can't I'm I'm basically paralyzed with fear. Yep. But they can't really verbalize it. So panic disorder falls under categories of different types of anxiety. And you can definitely have a generalized anxiety disorder and then also have panic. Yeah, attacks right you can have both of those things happen it's interesting with them um, the personality type they also tend to be people who are sort of all or nothing like mm. I, i'm a perfectionist interesting and they can, and and that makes it really hard for them to mm-hmm. accept when it doesn't fall into the all or nothing category okay um so that was interesting to read about with generalized anxiety disorder then there's social anxiety disorder we probably all know people that may have this or may be sort of on the borderline they tend to be shy they tend to be withdrawn Um, they're really afraid of saying or doing the wrong thing and I I see this in little kids too where it's I don't think they have social anxiety disorder but they don't raise their hand or participate because they're afraid of being wrong I think this is taking it to another level their fear of saying or doing something wrong leads them to the point where they won't put themselves in situations where this might happen. Oh, and I see that a lot. Right. And they're worried more about what other people are thinking about them. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, as that's opposed to... So common. It, it You know, so it, that's interesting how that their fear is really focused on what other people are thinking instead of just how I'm feeling. Um, I see
0: that a lot in... Uh, I had a, a couple of kids who just wouldn't speak in class, like just wouldn't speak. So you didn't know whether they were having trouble learning because of a learning difference, or they didn't know the material, or Or whatever. people might just say, you're just super shy. Right. They just, they wouldn't speak. And it's interesting. I, I would say that I see more of a gender fallout. I, it's more common for me to see that type of a extreme social anxiety in f- women or young girls. I haven't seen that same degree of social anxiety
1: in young boys. I've seen it in boys too, but f- for me some of my some of the people i've seen with it haven't had what i'd call selective mutism so another form of anxiety where a child refuses to speak in certain settings but they speak completely normally at home when they're one on one with their friends but if they come into the office <laughs> yeah, that happens we all of have time. this they yep. will they will whisper mm-hmm. um, or they will just stare at me and mm-hmm. these are school age kids we're talking about mm-hmm. um or they'll whisper to their parents and their parents will speak to them. So selective mutism can be a problem because they won't participate in class, um, but and yet perfectly they speak perfectly at home or one on one on playdates with their friends or even on the playground. Um so I that's really tricky between the social anxiety disorder and selective mutism. Yeah, they can I present can that. very similarly. The other the other um type of anxiety we sometimes see as agoraphobia and that's fear in a specific environment i think people often think about that as i'm not leaving my house right most commonly but it can be any particular area or space or um, event people in this situation feel like they can't escape or they can't cope like they're Mm -hmm. trapped Mm -hmm. and i think for our patients it means they may miss out on really important things they have to do they may miss out on a social event or a graduation mm-hmm. or something that they really should attend that's that's meaningful or a milestone. And they may also need, like, their safe person, somebody. It's almost like your security blanket to go with you. Yes, I so, see that a lot. Yeah. I see um, that in the
0: context of separation anxiety a lot. You know, the, the three- or four-year-olds where they're being dropped off in preschool or daycare, and um, you expect a certain amount of tearfulness sometimes. But there are kids that the parents can't leave or daycare is calling you an hour later
1: saying this isn't working out. You're going to have to pick up your little one. Uh, and when they're really young and they're starting out with daycare, I don't I give them actually a month or or sometimes even two months to really get used to that. But this kind of separation anxiety disorder, it just doesn't get better.
0: Um, there is one type of phobia that I see every single day when I tell someone they need a shot. shot phobia vaccination phobia phobia. uh kids and it it isn't funny but i'll see kids with piercings or tattoos and i'll say really you're gonna come here and tell them and you got your nose pierced or your cartilage pierced but you're gonna flip out over the flu shot it's fascinating to me how it plays out The, the phobias where the line in the sand is for different people.
1: Because they don't have to be logical. Right. That's the thing right. is they're not logical right. al- always. You can have some logical reasons you develop anxiety about something, but but they're not always. I think it's really important to understand that you can have other things that co-occur with anxiety. So you may have other emotional health issues like depression. You might have uh, learning disabilities or problems with language um, and you can sometimes see oppositional defiance disorder, and that's really tough too. So how? Do, so I have a couple of questions.
0: Just in listening in the last few minutes, how? What advice do you give parents with the separation anxiety? You know, how you're talking about you. It take two to four weeks for little ones. How do you tell them to get through that time? Because I also feel like there's this normal level of anxiety. That gets misinterpreted as uh, there's a problem and then there's a fix that's done. And instead of learning, instead of that child learning, oh, I am resilient. I can get through this. We sort of kick the can down the road and that lesson gets pushed off until they're older. And that may or may not be the best choice. It just depends. So what, what kinds of coping strategies do you give to the parents? Because that's really stressful.
1: It is really stressful. This goes back to parenting styles. Mm-hmm. And what works for one family doesn't necessarily work for another. But children, they learn from watching, observing, and their experiences. And they can model parents' behavior. So if parents are being very anxious, this can lead to the children also behaving Hmm. in the same way. And so, for example, with the preschool situation, I usually tell parents, any big transition, it may take a couple months for your kids to get used to this new situation, whether that's a new sibling in the house or a new babysitter or a new school. Um, it may be quite a bit faster. But what you want to do is set them up f- to succeed. In your head, you have to say, this is going to be okay. This is going to oh, be a great adventure. Yeah. Um, this is something you need to do now. You're three, and preschool is an important part of your learning process and to um, practice your social skills with other three-year-olds, because that's where you should be. I like how you're shifting it from, I feel
0: bad that I'm forcing my child into doing this, to, this is great, you're three, and this is what you
1: do when you're three. That's a really important shift. And when you're, you as a parent say that to yourself, and you really believe it, instead of in your head saying, oh, this is going to be so hard, and they're not going to like it, and... I feel like I'm abandoning my child, and whatever ideas you can you can have in your head about feeling bad about that process, you got to switch it, right? Otherwise, you're going to transmit those ideas in what you say and how you say That's it. That's so true, and that comes up actually in sleep training,
0: in um, approaches to food, in approaches to potty training. There's so many different areas where you, as a parent are the first place where anxiety can manifest
1: and set the, you set the tone You
0: and really set the tone for this. So maybe taking some time, talk about it with a partner or your spouse or a good friend or some other, whatever your support, your parent support network is to figure out some coping skills. Um, I tell people, you know, the first week of preschool is not a good week to plan a bunch of dinner parties or, put a lot of stuff on your plate you want to build in some time so that you can have that uh, a little bit of give in your schedule so that if drop-off takes five minutes longer then it just takes five minutes longer Uh, but that at some point whatever ritual you have for drop-off there was a story on another episode about a, a dad who would come up with this great little ritual with his son whatever that is you've got to walk away then you you just Let it go and walk away and the more that you turn around or the more that you apologize or you say, I'm really sorry, it kind of undermines
1: whatever daycare or preschool is trying to do, wouldn't you say? Definitely. And so when you say you're going to be fine and have fun and make great friends and what a great adventure, you're not only saying those words, your body language should mimic what you're saying. Yeah. You have to believe what you're saying. Because otherwise what you say and what you do are going to be different and your child will see the difference. Oh, They'll yes. see your body language. They'll see that you're sort of hunched over and sad or your face is wrinkly or whatever it is. And they're going to say, I, your your lips are moving, Yeah, but you're really worried about me. So I must be, I'm, this must be something I should be worried about too. Yeah, that's so fair.
0: Uh the mindfulness is a good way for parents to work through that, right? Uh, some other tool that you can use for the anxiety piece. I also feel that as parents, you know your child's personality better than anybody, and you may have the kind of child that does better if you do rehearsals. So you do a, you'll drive past the school a few times so they that they know what it looks like, and then you know you can walk through you walk around it on a weekend or something so this is what it feels like so you you can take a step-by-step approach um and then sometimes if you i like that idea because it's an introduction right right? A slow introduction and then maybe you start with just one day a week uh and see how that goes and then move up to two days or three days so that if you have the kind of child that does not do well with sudden change you're gradually building some kind of structure to that change
1: and some of the kids do well with a nursery school setting or um, a cooperative nursery school where parents or caregivers are there one out of three mornings a week Mm -hmm. so it's a nice introduction your safe person is there but not all the time that's a real gentle way to introduce a preschool and nursery school concept i like that
0: or the i mean the, the object i don't know if you can put a little I don't know if they stuff, really let stuffed animals or some little thing that you and your kiddo can share that's age appropriate. This is the special, this is the link. So if you feel nervous or something, this is what you can have uh, to not be nervous. You know, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't give a teddy bear to a teenager, for example, unless they really wanted it. But
1: something. That, an o- like a, an object to remind yeah. you. Yeah. That you're okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a some form of a security blanket. Exactly. <laughs> It could be a
0: security blanket. So I like the um because I feel that anxiety as a human characteristic shows up so early.
1: So, what causes it? What makes us well, feel? Well, we still there's there's still a lot of research being looked at to try to figure out what we'd call the pathogenesis of anxiety. Why does it happen? And from a neurologic standpoint, we've talked about the brain before, but there are areas of the brain called the amygdala, the hippocampus, the prefrontal cortex, and the activity of those um, may or may not have some impact on anxiety disorders. And they may correlate with the way you process information that makes you scared and how you learn to decide that's not scary or not.
0: That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. I um I like the nuance that you have in there. I have tended to be a little bit more concrete, I think, in how I, I explain it to families. i say how do you how do you explain it? I'll usu- I'll tell people it's the way that your brain processes feelings can have it's hardwired. Almost like a radio or a you could be a PC or a Mac person, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that your brain is just wired that way and so if your brain is wired a certain way and you see the same thing as somebody else whose brain is wired a different way, that person may still be able to go on and do the thing that they want to do but your brain just shuts down because of the way it's wired and I try to do that I think to take away this idea that there's something wrong with me or um, it's my fault or I'm weak, or I just need to get over it. I feel like those approaches can sometimes do more harm than good. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know what your experience is. Well, been. I
1: think it's important to phrase things to our patients so that they don't feel like it's their fault. Right. Or that it's not something that they can't change potentially or that causes them to feel weak. And I think framing it in a way that's not negative is important. So but purely from a scientific standpoint that's one of the things that i read yep. about genetics definitely can play a role in anxiety showing up or not it does run in families but genetics doesn't doesn't necessarily have no it's it not doesn't the story. it doesn't mean you're definitely going to have anxiety or not or other right. any other mental health thing and then social and environmental factors also are really important the way parents parent can play a real oh, critical yes. role in the development of childhood anxiety. And what happens to you, right? We know um, situations where children are, are in environments are, that are dangerous um, that can have direct negative consequences. They can either be in a situation that's dangerous or feel like they're going to be somewhere dangerous and then that just leads to them thinking any situation that mimics that, is gonna be bad. So interesting that you say
0: that because I I've been doing this long enough that I've seen the arc swing back and forth a little bit and you have too. And I remember when I first started kids were still kinda of sort of walking to school by themselves, but it was starting to be something that people felt uncomfortable about. And then there was there were a lot of years in the middle where nobody walked to school. It was all about parents dropping them off. And in the last few years I'm starting to see parents in schools recognize that the kids need to be able to walk to school. That is a skill to navigate being able to walk to school and that we as parents have let this very normal, natural, protective instinct, we don't want anything bad to happen to our kids, become this blanket anxiety. If they walk to school, something bad will happen to them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's interesting to hear you say the parenting styles can have... The way that people parent can play into it, I think that's hard. I, I've talked to many parents who struggle with that idea of um, if I let them, if I let them cry at night during sleep training, is that abandonment? Are they going to have psychosocial issues? How do you reassure people that that you can be, you can, be, you, you're still, it's okay to let your kids feel some amount of anxiety and you're still a good
1: parent. You know what I mean? Well, I think that's the million dollar question or maybe a billion dollar question is how do you parent so that you are effective and you raise a healthy child and you're not over anxious or over-protective? Yeah, I guess so. because huh? some degree of anxiety and protectiveness is just hardwired in, in every parent or in anybody who takes care of somebody they love. Mm-hmm. You're going to be worried. You yeah. want to keep them safe. That's one of the big big issues for parents when their kids start to become independent. That's a whole nother issue that parents have to let go. But there is some degree of protectiveness that becomes a negative thing when it means that your child doesn't feel safe going to summer camp, doesn't feel safe going for a play date, doesn't feel safe joining a team sport. I mean, I'm giving very concrete examples. Mm -hmm. You want to promote these things, just like I was talking about preschool. You're going to have a great time. You don't have to have a best friend. You're going to meet all sorts of people mm-hmm. here. You're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. And you, again, you really have to believe those things. You make good choices about the things your kid can do, and then you have to work on yourself, even if you're over-anxious about it. Because again, the child will learn to recognize your anxiousness. And they may decide they're going to avoid those, be- those things because they're going to get anxious because you're anxious. Yeah. no, I see. And there's saying. not one right. I can't say the same thing to everybody because everybody has different parenting styles. I mean, one of my. I recall one of my friends when I was first having kids was was um, so relaxed about it. And she'd had a baby a few months before me. And. I would say I'm not over anxious as a parent, but I was doing my due diligence. I wanted to make sure everything was done correctly. I'm a pediatrician. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to, I have to make sure that I'm really doing things correctly. And this friend of mine was, everything's going to be fine. Just very, um, much more casual about it, but not unsafe. And I watched this and said, you know, I, I need to adopt some of this. Everything is going to be fine. I like that mantra. I mean, I, I sometimes will put into context to
0: people that there are families that are started by people much younger um, with there are 16 year olds in some parts of this world that are having babies and raising babies to be fine adults and steering away from the ethical debate about whether that's okay or not. The fact of the matter is that we humans have been having babies for a long time and I think a lot of a lot of the instincts, I like the way you phrase it, a lot of the parenting
1: instincts really are hardwired. That, And also what you experienced also. You tend to have experiences you come into this with, right? So I like to think about it also as um, if somebody grows up in a family with lots of kids. <laughs> right. Their experience having children is going to be different than the person who was a solo child or only had two kids in the family. And so... That leads those two parents to have different expectations of their role perhaps or, or how much to worry about something because they're used to different households as a child. But I, I really feel like you have to really look at how much an- anxiousness and how much protectiveness is okay and where does it become negative for your child because you're not letting them do things that in general are safe and age-appropriate to do.
0: Not letting them do things or not communicating with them. I I get a lot of families that understandably want to have private conversations, but the parents will usually ask me, can I step out of the room and talk to you about something? And then we'll step back in the room. And it's usually a conversation that actually is entirely appropriate to have in front of that child. But by stepping out of that room and having a conversation away from that
1: child, now that child's anxious about, well, what are they saying? They were talking about the elephant in the room. Exactly. And I know there's an elephant and nobody's talking about it. And since they're not talking about it, now the child is even more worried. Exactly. Exactly. There's so much to talk about with anxiety and elephants, isn't there? There really is. And and unfortunately, there isn't one right plan for everybody. It just is not that straightforward. Um, what, how do, how does this present sometimes? So, so occasionally or not even occasionally, somebody will come in and they have had a lot of stomach aches. Oh yeah. Or they've had lots of headaches. Yep. And the parent and the kiddo are worried about that. Yep. Um, and you don't find anything and they've missed a bunch of days of school and then they see a specialist because you want to make sure you're not missing Right. Something you, you significant, exactly. a migraine that needs treatment or um, some sort of gastrointestinal problem or food sensitivity, but nothing shows up and they're still complaining about this. I have had more than one kiddo go through a phenomenally extensive and
0: thorough medical workup. And I'm not saying that was the wrong thing to do, but at some point... It's hard not to be the voice in the room that says, I get it, we've got to go down the road and and do all these things. But this other thing is still on the table, we've got to consider anxieties playing a role in this. And let's talk about that. And that I
1: think is hard sometimes. I've had the same situation. And you can have an issue too, right? right? You could have migraine headaches yep. and also have anxiety. And the two things together make everything worse. Yeah. So we're always very careful to try to make sure we're not missing something that really is a problem. But emotional health, anxiety issues can present as actually physical symptoms. A lot of times I do. And it's funny. I think... It's not just little kids that have physical symptoms of
0: anxiety. It can be middle school, uh, high school, high school, young adults that will come in with uh stomach ache or gagging or headache and, and genuinely not realize that they're connected to some feelings that they're not aware of. Uh, I've also found that the extreme picky eater, the one
1: that the vegetables can't touch each other or... Af- after like three years old right when they're really little they right. don't want the food to touch and they don't want sauce and right. that's all of that but at some point that's not a normal thing anymore
0: <laughs> it's a thing you expect them to grow out of so yes. the extreme pickiness i won't try anything other than these three things the beige diet as i call it the mac and cheese pizza that's it i'm not having
1: anything else um missing and, a lot of school yep not wanting to go to school and we're not talking about one or two days we're talking about they've missed three weeks of school but they haven't really had any symptoms of illness like fever or vomiting the extreme meltdowns that the
0: anger out of proportion to what's in front of them the irritability and for and kids. sometimes
1: they'll be fine in school. Yep. At when it's Oftentimes. when it's initially. They'll yep. the mom will say they're a dream at school, preschool says they're fine mm-hmm. or the teacher says they're the model student. And that then they come home and they're just so mean to everybody. And sometimes I'll tell the parent, you know, they're using up all their emotional energy to keep it together at school. Yep. And then they just don't have any more left. To ironically be like that at home the parents have done a really good job instilling <laughs> the social <laughs> yes. norm
0: expectation exactly yes. you have your party manners and you have your home manners they've done a really good job with that you are their safe space but boy they're letting it out yes sleep That's, is another area oh. i hear
1: about with anxiety and it's funny, it's sort of a vicious cycle when you have anxiety, you have a hard time falling asleep, or you might wake up in the middle of the night, and then you can't get back to sleep, but yeah. sleep is so important to combat oh, emotional health issues. Is. It's so tri- it's part sort of the
0: trifecta of wellness.
1: So, but that comes up a lot. The kids will have a hard time going to sleep. Um, again, the school thing, either school avoidance or um, all of a sudden, I I just can't get my homework done anymore, or I... I'm uh, not able to get my test done or I'm not going to school because I have a test that day. So I have a headache or a tummy ache. Or at some point you can see drastic drop-offs in grades. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Or even friendships, their friendship group changes. I have a lot of f- friends whose
0: kids, as they're going through adolescence, can morph from what I consider to be age appropriate experimenting behaviors like I'm really curious about pot I'm going to try pot or I'm going to try a drink and at some point it morphs from that into I must have a drink every day or I must have pot every day and and to me the conversation that sometimes gets lost is what are you medicating yourself for because if you're having to have pot or alcohol or whatever substance every day it's genuinely because you feel better when you're taking that, which means your day to day life isn't giving you the same
1: pleasure that this other substance is. So Or that you can't get through your day without something. Because you are what we call self medicating. Correct. Trying to self medicate those bad symptoms away so you can get through your day. So to me that's a big red flag of huge red flag. Is there
0: anxiety here that we're we're not addressing and we're focusing more on the addiction and and a very appropriate parental anxiety that something bad's gonna to happen to my child because
1: they're going down this path. I see that a lot. And sometimes that's the warning that brings them in, even though some of these other things have existed. Yep. I find for a large majority of patients who come in to discuss emotional health issues, often it's been exist it's been in existence for a while, but it gets to the point where it's so bad. Yeah, and then that it's that, that stuck. sometimes you know it can even lead to suicidal thoughts, and that's that's a you have to go emergently to. So can somewhere. we talk about
0: the? I feel like the words suicide and depression are really taboo. Sometimes people
1: are afraid to say them out loud. It's too bad, because right? Because it's too bad because all of these things. Nobody asks for these things. I really mm-hmm. tried to tell patients that come in if they have friends or 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 um, peers that are maybe making bad decisions about what they choose to do. I said, you know what? I am not here to judge them. Right. There's a reason sometimes some of the your teen friends or peers may be making bad decisions. Um, I don't think anyone asks for these problems. No one asks to have substance abuse issues. If anything, they deserve more understanding or empathy that something is going on that you're choosing those to choosing to do those bad things now that doesn't mean you have to be influenced by them or that they're you're going to be your best friend but it's important to look at things like making bad choices you were talking about substance abuse or pot or alcohol that that person needs some help probably
0: i also think it's important to let especially the teenagers know, it's not your responsibility to fix it. Oh, definitely. Um, Definitely. Important point. Right? I feel that there's a lot of, we don't really trust anyone else except our friends, and I'm not going to talk about it with my grown-up resources. Maybe I will, maybe I won't, but I'm going to talk about it with my friends. And oftentimes there's one friend, or multiple friends, that will take it upon themselves to fix the issue. And And that's not
1: your role, I think. They become the de facto therapist. And it's from a place, I think, of friendship and caring. But they're not trained to provide that. And and it's also hard if you have a really good friend who's going through some trouble to say, well, I can't be your therapist. I can't talk to you every night at 2 o'clock when you can't go to sleep. It's really hard for teenagers to set limits on friendships. They feel things even more passionately, passionately than, than a grown-up does. But it's important to recognize you can be their friend, but you're not their therapist. I feel like that's an
0: excellent segue into my next point, which is a lot of times people call us. Um, we've got great relationships with families, great relationships with the kids. And when a bump in the road comes up, they'll say, well, we got to call you because we didn't know who else to call. And while I love the fact that you called me and I really want to help I'm not a trained therapist. I um, I don't have those tools. And and a trained therapist, a good therapist has great skill in helping people walk through issues. And and I hate to use the word fix because sometimes that implies that there's a defect. But really, helping you get to a place where you can function and find joy in life again, uh, whatever words you want to use. Yeah, you're learning. You're learning to manage your feelings. Right. And primary care docs. I think are by and large the de facto therapists for a lot of families, and we we do the best we can. Some may have more skill than others, but for a lot of us, that's not
1: what we were trained in in medical school. And unfortunately, there is a national shortage of it's huge child and adolescent psychologists and psychiatrists. So many pediatricians are now having to do much more mental health. Um, i feel like it's worth care listing what are the differences yes um
0: a psychiatrist is someone who went to medical school or do school but specializes in mental health and the key difference for psychiatrists versus psychologists or other mental health professionals is a psychiatrist can prescribe medication they can also help assess to see if medication is needed in that situation and um I have told families, you know what? The last time I had to decide whether someone needed an antidepressant was when I was in medical school and I wasn't doing it on my own. I was doing it when I was rotating under the supervision of a psychiatrist. It's not my forte. It's not in my wheelhouse of skills that I can reach for. So oftentimes we'll recommend seeing a psychiatrist, not because we don't want to help, but just because they have the skill set,
1: wouldn't you say? I also see some developmental pediatricians who has, have a lot of expertise in right. um, managing learning disorders and ADHD and uh, other conditions that could include depression and anxiety. And they have a comfort zone also in prescribing medication. And I think there are pediatricians and primary care physicians that also um, have had a lot of experience with this who feel comfortable prescribing. Hats off to them. And my, my guess is,
0: because there's such an extreme shortage of other mental health resources in their area, they've had no choice but to take that on. Um, so yes, you're absolutely. There can be a wide variation in comfort level and skill sets. Uh, but psychiatrist is someone who's specially trained. Psychologist uh, is someone who has a PhD or a PsyD in clinical or counseling psychology. The PhD folks generally went to a research-based graduate program they created a study had to write a paper a dissertation the PsyD folks have a clinical degree and are usually more focused on the clinical aspects of psychosocial therapy but they're both doctorate level degrees Uh, you can have a psychologist who's also an MS in psychology and can work under the supervision of a PhD or PsyD licensed psychologists are qualified to do counseling psychotherapy, they can perform psychological testing, you know, picking up an anxiety versus depression, that kind of a thing, providing treatment for mental health issues. But in most states, they can't prescribe medication. So really, that seems to be a big cutoff. Point. And I've
1: I've also had uh, care conferences with psychologists, and they, many of them have a psychiatrist they work with closely. Yep. So mm-hmm. that there is sort of a team of a psychiatrist with a psychologist in the primary care. I mean, that's ideal. Mm-hmm. That is ideal. Um, there, You can also have licensed mental health
0: counselors. They have a master's level degree in psychology or counseling or related field. They also have additional working experience um, working with qualified mental health professionals after graduate school. And different states have different acronyms for for how you can tell. In California we have LMFT uh, which is now known as LMFCC. LMFT used to be Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. LMFCC is Licensed Marriage Family and Child Counselor. And they're again are qualified to evaluate and treat issues. They can provide counseling or psychotherapy but generally don't prescribe medication. You can also have Licensed Clinical Social Workers. I, I Have you worked with a lot of them as an out in the outpatient setting?
1: I really haven't. I would say when we were residents at the hospital, there was a lot of work with LCSW or licensed clinical social workers. They did a lot of coordination of care. Um, But I would say the majority of my patients for what it's worth, work with a psychologist or um, an LMFCC now. What about you? Same. I can tell you that in the hospital
0: setting and a licensed clinical social worker can be a lifesaver and such a great advocate uh, for your child if you're having unique issues. They're wonderful, but I don't have a lot of, I don't do a lot of work with them, co-managing folks in the outpatient side. Um, And then you can have psychiatric or mental health nurses who have, who have, who are nurses who have had special training in providing mental health services. They can also evaluate patients for mental illness and provide treatment, usually with psychotherapy. In some states, now I did not know this, but in some states, a psychiatric or mental health nurse can also prescribe and monitor medications. Sometimes they can do it independently and sometimes under the supervision of a doctor. I think in California, they the only person that can prescribe a med is a psychiatrist or a primary care doc. That is my understanding as well. Yeah. Um, so there's lots of different options, but like you said, there's a huge shortage no matter where you are. I
1: think that's universal. I mean that's a big thing. Um and then you have to know for the particular issue that you're seeing somebody for, uh, it might be a short term thing. Counseling's more short term, it focuses on specific issues and or addresses a particular problem. Psychotherapy is more long term, you may focus on a wider range of issues. It's also called talk therapy. And I think there's different kinds of psychotherapy. There are. There's the Freudian
0: classic psychoanalytic, behavioral, cognitive, humanistic, integrative, holistic. But basically, it's more of a long-term treatment. And sometimes families just want things to get better now. And I understand that.
1: But unfortunately, this is a long haul. This is not a short fix. That brings up a good point. I think anxiety is something that can sometimes take a long time to manifest. So it's obvious to other people. Sometimes it's doesn't take very long. But expectation about what treatment can do is important for the patient and the family and the parent. Because it may take a long time. It isn't a quick fix. This is not a, I'm going to give you... A week of antibiotics and you're going to feel better. Uh, I wish it was. I wish it was. This is this is juggling something that feelings that you've had to deal with and learning how to deal with them and your brain as a teenager may handle this differently and process tools differently than your brain as a young adult or an adult and there may be times when life is more stressful and you need more therapy sessions and other times where you feel like I got this Mm -hmm. and you don't need, and you can back off or feel like you're fine, but then another time you might need to come back to it. So I think seeing that this is a long haul and a variable road Mm -hmm. is a realistic expectation.
0: So to recap, anxiety is part of the human experience, but you can have what we call anxiety disorders where you can't really function because of the anxiety versus your normal situational anxiety, right? Right. Right. And it looks different based on your ages. Um, Parental modeling of life situations is super important. What you say and what your body language is saying. Um, And then we've been talking a lot about trifecta of wellness. If you're not paying attention to your sleep, your nutrition, and you're not getting enough exercise and managing anxiety is going to be that much more challenging. Uh, and then recognizing that there are lots of different professionals that are, could help, but it can be a long process. Um, yes, this is the this is a marathon, not a sprint.
1: And letting your pediatrician or primary care physician know what's going on, yes, will be really important. important as well.
0: Yeah, and we have some stuff in the liner notes to the podcast about links on sort of the rough steps on how you the logistics on how you find someone uh but the short answer is it can it can take a long time and it can mean a lot of phone calls trying to find someone that's going to mesh well with your family
1: or your child or both that has time to see you in their schedule
0: and if i if i could say just one thing naming that elephant and demystifying it removes a lot of the stigma and sometimes helps with the anxiety as well i can see people relax a little when you just say let's just talk about it i'm not here to judge you let's just talk about it i think that can go a long way
1: to helping kids move through this process what do you think i think that's one of the most important things yeah it's really recognizing that there's something there but we can help and you can get help and you can learn how to manage this yeah i've I've often joked, I think all of us would benefit from a month of therapy. A year. <laughs> I agree
0: wholeheartedly. yeah okay well that hopefully that was helpful. I know that was a little longer than some of our other podcasts, but it's a it's a really important topic and one that we feel strongly about, and we just wanted to share all this information with you. so I hope that helps. um I'm gonna go off and meditate or do something mindful to help with the anxiety. <laughs>
1: What about you? We have finished this podcast. I hope it was helpful too. And um, work on finding joy in your life. Love it. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.